House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. John Copenhaver. How how you doing, John? I'm doing very well, Al. How are you? I'm I'm okay. Allergies now, I think. Cold yeah. allergies. There's always <laughs> something going on around. I don't know what's going on this year. It's May, and I'm been sick. It seems like most of the year. Well, maybe you're making progress to the summer, where you'll be, you know, allergy and sickness free. I guess so. You know, I'm not really out doing anything either, so that's crazy. You know? <laughs> it's not like I'm out socializing and partying and doing all this stuff. <laughs> Just working. And it, so hopefully it all gets uh, cleared up. Not like you. You're out socializing, going to all these book shows. You get to do uh, all this stuff and nothing. You're just... Uh, Oh. I have been lucky, but maybe I'm just I've built up uh, immunity. Maybe you need to get out. Maybe that's the problem. Well, that's probably it. You know, being closed <laughs> in and now getting out and and kind of just just the stores and stuff. It's enough to drive me. You know. Anyway. Um. So speaking of that, I know you'll be at the VoucherCon, and uh, that'll be exciting. And we've got another exciting guest who will be uh, the international guest of honor at VoucherCon, and a uh, great writer. And uh, so we're going to learn how to be successful in writing today. So uh, we've got Anne Cleves. Thank you for being here. It's lovely to be here. And I'm not sure that I can help anybody be successful. It took me 20 years of being published before I had any commercial success at all. So I don't think I'm the right person to ask you. <laughs> Well, I, I've got my pen and paper out here, and I, and I, and I kind of got the idea, okay, great. Now I can take some notes and find out how I'm going to become a successful writer. And I think be lucky is the thing you can take away from, from my story. It, it, do, you, do you really believe that? It's, it's just being lucky and in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing sort of thing, or is there something more? I think so. I mean, I think you have to write a good book to start with, but it's so random commercial success. As I say, I was 20 years of writing, and then I wrote the first book set in Shetland, and it was just at the right time because Scandi Noir was big, and people were watching The Killing and The Bridge on television in Europe, and, and it was the, the background, the setting of Shetland, I think, that really caught reviewers and readers' imagination. And suddenly I won a prize, and I'd never won a prize before, and suddenly I was being bought by overseas publishers, and that had never happened before. That was luck, I think, timing and luck. But it, it had to be a reasonable book to start with, or it wouldn't have won the prize. Right, there has to be some, some content. So when something like that happens, how, how is it you handle something like that? Because you're, you're writing along, doing your thing, and not expecting it, and all of a sudden, like you said, you've got you know, foreign publishers and you've got all this stuff going on and Shetland becomes a TV uh, series and for BBC and, and all that excitement. So is it, is it hard not to have that affect you? I don't think so because you've been doing it for so long, you're pretty grounded and you know that what comes easily can be can go easily as well. You know, I'd seen people, other writers, be suddenly very popular and then their popularity waned and tastes changed. I was able to give up the day job at that point, so that was lovely. I had more time to write. So when you did that and Shetland uh, became what it, what it is and what it was, um, you must get a lot of attention and offers at times like that. Does it? Does it? Do, it doesn't affect you at all. You don't. You don't. You didn't even let it bother you. You stayed away from a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I think so because again, it happened quite gradually because. 
Vera hit the TV screens before Shetland did. And that, again, was just a piece of luck that the first of the Vera books didn't sell very well and there were lots of paperbacks knocking around in thrift shops and charity shops. And one was in an Oxfam shop in North London and somebody came to, to buy it to take on holiday. And nothing at all unusual in that. And we get a bit, sometimes we get a bit annoyed when people buy books from charity shops. Don't get any royalties for that. But she was books executive for ITV Studios. And they were looking for a popular TV drama for Sunday night with a strong female lead. And that's how Vera came to be on the television. Just like if she hadn't gone into that, into that bookshop, Vera might never have made it to the show. There's so many stories, like in in the writing world, um, you know, about the, the the luck aspect. But of course, I mean, you're also incredibly persistent. That seems to be an important part of, you know, if you could say increasing your luck. Um, you know, I I think that um, that is is part of the, I guess, part of the the real po- the power of of a writer is to be persistent to to find some success. Um, do you think so? Is that part? I think. Yeah, I think so, but I think also there are some people who just love writing and some people who really want to be a writer. And I'm very lucky because I love writing. So I'm much happier sat at my kitchen table making stuff up for a living and telling stories and exploring problems that I want to understand better through my work than, you know, the the glitzy stuff is it's fun and it's lovely to get out to meet readers, but really what I enjoy doing is writing. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine um, in, in the publishing world these days to not really love the writing. <laughs> it would be it would be hard, but you're, you're, I, I'm I'm sure that's the case. I'm sure folks do love more the sort of the idea of being a writer than than writing. Yeah, See, seeing the seeing the book with the the cover and seeing people enjoy it is fun, but Really, I don't feel it belongs to me once it's a book. It goes out into the world and everybody who reads it sees it from a different angle and they bring their own prejudices to it. And it becomes a different book depending on who's reading it. It's not my book then. Do you, do you find, one thing I'm, I'm very curious about because you have uh, so many TV shows of your book and um, you know, episodes based on your characters that not weren't necessarily things you wrote. Do you ever feel like there's an influence that kind of com- comes back to you? Do you feel influenced by the TV shows, or can you really keep those two things separate in your mind? I, I think I do. I think it's a bit different with Vera, because Brenda Blethyn understands the character. She's the actor that plays Vera. Right, sure. Double, double Oscar nominee for Secrets and Lies, the little voice, so pretty stupendous actress. And so she reads all the books. We always send her a proof before the book comes out. So she gets first reading of it. And I think I'm, I can actually learn a bit about the character from her. She is such a good actor. So just the way that she portrays her and the tone of voice and just the look. So I do learn a bit more about, I suppose she's now become our Vera through watching the show. But I, I determined that I wasn't going to meddle right from the start because I have a very clear vision of what I'm doing when I'm writing. You know, I, I see it absolutely what I'm going to do. And I love that. I love that creativity. And I think that the director, the scriptwriter, the actor also have a very clear vision of what they want to do. And me say, oh, I'm not sure my Vera would do that or Jimmy Perez wouldn't do that. It just muddies the water and you end up with a much less good piece of work. You say you like writing the best 
part, you know, of, of it, and uh, kind of sitting there and focusing on problems or things you want to talk about. Is there some sort of a meaning that you want people to to get out of a book every time they read one of your books? I want them. I think. Well, I've, I've been thinking about it quite a lot, and what is at the heart of all my series is a kind of kindness. The idea that kindness is quite important, and I suppose if there's anything that links them, it's that. They're, they're three very different characters, but I'm a great believer that we should be kinder to each other. Yeah, especially um, of recent days, that's for sure. It seems to be a lot of, you know, people are much freer to be rude to each other, it seems like, as of late. But, yeah, you know don't understand it but so so what come what comes first for you when you sit down is it is it like the the plot the story or is it the character or is it even the setting it's the place i always know where it's going to be set before i know anything about it because character grows out of the place i think we are a product of where we grew up the schools we went to the kids we played with in the street the view from our windows all that influences who we are so do you do you always use a setting that you are close to yourself yes i write i have written three series one set in shetland one set in northumberland in northeast england and one set in north devon which is where i grew up so right across the country north devon down in the southwest tourist place close to cornwall where people go for their holidays and northumberland where i live now which is where vera is filmed and which is a magnificent county to set a series because it's got such variety within it. It's got beautiful uplands and almost feudal country houses and country estates. But then it has quite an interesting post-industrial landscape because we used to have pits, coal mines, and we don't anymore. And we used to build amazing ships, and we don't do that anymore. So looking at communities that used to have a very important role especially for the men, and I think it's the men that missed out, really. So they, they're not going and, and digging coal, and they're not going and building ships. So your, your characters, where do they come from for you? How do you develop a character? Uh, is it, a, you know, in your mind out of a dream, or is it from people you've run across? It might be people that I've come across, but mostly they're f completely created, and it might be... It might be triggered by an overheard bit of conversation in a train. I can't imagine being a writer if you don't use public transport. I get so many bits of inspiration just listening to people talking. I'm a terrible eavesdropper. I love the time of year when people have switched on their lights but forgotten to draw their curtains. So you can go past and you get these glimpses of domestic life. All that, I think, feed into the into the story how do you how do you hear your dialogue with your characters is it something that is it something you hear in your mind or do you hear the voices from your characters absolutely yes i hear them speak in my head i think there has to be something real to start off with and if you don't then it's just kind of abstract and it's just words running on a page and it's quite interesting i, I was writing a new scene and i wanted to change I wanted to change the point of view of one of the characters, so I lost one of the characters and somebody else came in in their place. And the, I had to change absolutely every bit of dialogue because it was just so different. Even though it might have been there to move the plot on and tell a bit more about the story, each character has their own way of speaking. 
And you need to know that and understand that. You know, one thing that um, I, I teach uh, in an MFA program in, in the U.S., and one thing that it serves as an ongoing conversation is, you know, uh, what it means to write across difference, what it means to write characters that are different from you with different backgrounds and points of view, identities, et cetera. And you, and you do that really well. Um, and your most recent character, of course, is a gay man. And I, I'm just curious about wh- what led you there and the thought process and, and, and why. Matthew didn't start off as gay. I, I started that series just after my husband died. And I wanted to run away from, from here, from where I live. And not, not because of the memories were horrible or anything, but because I was getting so much sympathy. He had so many friends and I just wanted to run away from the pity, really. And I ran, ran down to North Devon, which is where an old school friend of mine lives. And she was talking about her background, which was in a very enclosed evangelical community. Not cruel or unkind, but just very, very certain about their beliefs. So when the day of rapture came, only the, the people like them would be saved and everybody else would be damned. And if you lost your faith, which she did, but in a sort of gently discreet way. But if you suddenly lost your faith, then you would be unfellowshipped and cast away. And it seemed to me that if that had happened to somebody, they would look, they would, they would maybe find in the police service, because we have a police service, not a police force. The idea is that you're serving the community. Um, a sense of duty and honour and fellowship and community that, that he was lacking. So that's how I started. But the people who looked after me after Tim died, who scooped me up from the hospital, who fed me tea and wine and helped organise the funeral, were a gay couple, Martin and Paul. And when I was down in Devon and started thinking about this, this story, they were in my head, and I wanted to celebrate them. And it seemed to me that having, a, if, if Matthew Venn were gay, then that would explain the very tricky possibility of reconciliation with his with his family i think that's uh i mean i love that sort of organic uh i guess process to character where your other characters did they come about through that sort of an organic process or did they were they you know or something that kind of uh, jumped whole from your head <laughs> well vera stand-up definitely jumped whole from my head um I wrote her when I wasn't at all commercially successful, and I had a very um, trendy young editor who decided that traditional crime fiction wasn't ever going to sell anymore. So please, could I write a standalone novel of psychological suspense? Now, we were really broke. My husband worked for a conservation charity which paid peanuts, and I was doing odd bits of work as well. But we had two kids, and I would have written anything for her. So I thought that was what I was going to do. I was going to write this and had this idea for three women doing an environmental survey up in the hills. One of them would die. I hadn't drifted from the genre that far. But then I got really stuck because I don't plot in advance. And I think it was um, Raymond Chandler who said, if you're stuck with a story, have a guy burst through a door with a gun. And um, so I, I don't do guns because it take too much research. But I thought I would just have somebody come in through a door. And I was writing a funeral scene, and the door burst open after the services started, and in came Vera, and I called her. The name was with her, Vera Stanner, 
Um, I describe her as looking more like a bag lady than a detective. She's got a plastic carrier bag with all her notes in. And um, so she was there right from the beginning. But indirectly, right? So you're sort of creating a character almost uh, subconsciously. <laughs> I think I've worked out where she came from. I think she developed from, I, I was born in the mid-50s, so not that long after the war. And there were lots of women who either lost sweethearts during the war or who had been allowed to, to take on roles and responsibilities that they might not otherwise have been allowed. So, you know, they ran offices because the men were all the men were all fighting. I think very sensibly a lot of them decided they would rather be single and be nineteen fifties housewives. Because certainly here, if you were a teacher and you got married you had to give up work because the jobs were for the men coming back from the war. And so they became really formidable spinsters, these women. They were primary school teachers and hospital matrons, and they worked in libraries. And I think Vera grew out of those women. Yeah, I think that I have uh, two great aunts who were code breakers in the Second World War and very much sort of fit the description of what you're saying. Yeah, really formidable women in D.C., this was. Yeah, I think so. And Jimmy Perez was a bit different, the Shetland character, because really he was there um, to fit with the theme that I'd already developed. So I thought that Raven Black was about what it is to be an outsider and how long do we have to have lived somewhere before we feel that we belong. And so there are a number of different characters having different roles. One of them is an elderly guy who has lived in the island for generations, but is still considered an outsider because he's quite, he's a bit slow, he's not, doesn't fit in, a bit odd maybe. And then there's a teenage girl who's come in from south, and I don't think any teenage girls actually feel that they belong. And then I wanted, so I wanted my main detective character to be, to belong, but also not quite to belong. So I make him a Fair Islander, because Fair Island is the most remote of the Shetland Islands. And most of the islanders have never been. And I give him that Spanish name because there really was a Spanish armada ship wrecked off Fair Isle. And there were 60 survivors and it's not outside the bounds of possibility that one of them married a, an island woman and that the name continued. So that's that's how Jimmy Perez got born. What do you think makes a good character? Um, you know, is it a flaw? Is it something about being connected with the setting? Or is it some other more uh, ephemeral quality. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what makes a, makes a reader engage with a character, because we engage with all sorts of different people, don't we, in fiction? But I suppose when I'm writing, I want to write them as if it's from memory rather than imagination. So I know them so well that I can, I can write them as if I really, really know them, instead of that I'm making them up as I go along. Whenever I'm focused on an American style um, noir or, or sort of detective series, there seems to be an underlying anger throughout most of the, the theme of the stories, whereas in stuff from the UK doesn't have that. I don't know if that's just me, but uh, wh what do you feel the differences are between the two um, countries in their mystery writing? I think maybe until recently, certainly, the, just the structure was different. So traditional golden age British crime fiction, you have a limited number of suspects and you get to know them all fairly, fairly early on in the novel. And then there's a detective, whether he's amateur or professional, who works out what's happened and there's a denouement and there's a 
some form of reconciliation at the end. I think American, in the past, certainly American crime novels have been more linear. The thrillers have been more linear. So you have one central character that you're focused on and they move on and it's about their journey and who they meet and, and what's going on. And it's a bit different, I think. And traditionally, I suppose, our books have been more quiet and domestic. Though that's changed a lot recently. We have some great thrillers as well. Yeah, kind of a slower burn, but it's it's certainly more interesting and more character developed in a certain way. I, it's hard to explain for me. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but there are... You have some brilliant crime writers who write such good characters. I've, I've been reading Laurie Ray Day a lot recently. Laurie's terrific. Partly yeah. because she's a friend. But she does ordinary people better than anybody else I've ever read. Now, ordinary people from working class backgrounds who have to scrape a living somehow, but who still have rich lives, rich interior lives, and I love her books. I've just re um, read the one that's coming out, and will be out, I think, just after Bouchercon, which is called The Death of Us, and it's one of the best American crime novels I've read for ages. Laurie's great. Yeah, I, I know Laurie, and I'm, I'm super excited for that book. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's a wonderful book. I, I, I got her publicist to send me a copy when I was there, because I did a little bit of touring with her. We did Chicago. We did three events in Chicago. And, and there I got to, to do an event with one of my favorite, another of my favorite crime writers, Sarah Boretsky, which was fabulous. And then we did some lively events in Cleveland and Pittsburgh. So now you have a, a new book coming out at the same time as, uh, around the same time as BoucherCon, The Raging Storm. So what can you tell us about that? That's a Matthew Venn book, so it's set in North Devon. And it starts off with an adventurer, a kind of piratical adventurer turning up in a, in a tiny village on the North Devon coast. And it's not a pretty tourist village. It's a grey, granite, bleak kind of village. He turns up one day in the pub, almost as if by blown in by the wind, called Jem Roscoe. And everybody's so excited because he's been on the television and he's a local hero. And they want to know what he's doing there. And he won't tell them. He just says mysteriously that he's waiting for somebody. He's waiting for somebody. And he's in the pub every night, drinking cider, chatting to them. And then after a month, he doesn't turn up. And they wonder if this mysterious visitor has arrived or what's happened with him. But we find that something not very nice has happened to him. And that's the start of the book. And I think it's probably more of an adventure story than I've written before. And the, the baddie is more of a monster than I've ever written before. Very interesting. You're you're great at that uh, winding up into the story there, which I think is a talent. I know I don't know if Al ever has this problem, but to actually pitch or not pitch, but sort of explain your book. Uh, it, did that take practice? <laughs> I'm not usually very good at it, so I'm glad you thought <laughs> it was all right. <laughs> I'm glad you thought it was all right. Yeah. So yes, and so we also explore Matthew and Jonathan's relationship a bit more, and and a bit about. Matthew's background too. We have a hook that I hope will take us on to the next book. So, so your your famous guy, Je sailor uh, Jim Roscoe. Yeah. Who do you? How did you uh, develop that character? Who did he? Who was he set after? I think there are quite a lot of people, older people, who get celebrity and still want it, even though they're perhaps not known generally anymore, and they want they sort of want to be famous still. And there is certainly the round-the-world yachtsmen and the people who trek to the North Pole and the people who are 
on our televisions doing wonderful, exciting things. I think he, he was just an amalgam of all those, but I can see him really clearly. Really, really short hair, short white hair and stocky and fit and a sailor. After you complete one of these books, each time you, you finish a project, how do you think it changes you? Oh gosh, that's a, that's a good question. I'm generally very, very tired. I'm quite glad to get it done. Um, I don't know, really. I think I write because I just want to know a bit more about the characters that I've created. And by the end of the book, I hope I am more aware of them and I know as much about them as I can possibly know. And that the reader will understand who these people are and want to spend a bit of time with them. And, and I think that does that transcend to people just open and being understanding to other people they don't know, maybe? Yeah, I think so. And I think I've, I've got this project here in northeast England, which is one of the most deprived bits of it, some of the most deprived areas of the UK because of what I've just explained, I guess a bit like your Rust Belt, that we used to have heavy industry and we just don't anymore. And there are lots of... Um, quite disadvantaged communities because nothing has come in to replace that that industry and i've got a what what we call a reading for well-being project and i sponsor i, I was asked to give a a talk at a health inequalities conference just really to talk about what made me feel well and what makes me feel well is reading because if you're going through a tough time there is nothing like fiction as an escape so better run away and so I just threw this out at the end of this lecture and then said that I would sponsor two project workers to see if it would work for other people. And we would work with, with doctors and Public Health England and with social prescribers to refer lonely people and people with mental health problems and people with chronic pain to become part of our project, to work either as with individuals or join a reading group, which help with loneliness as well and really that's that's taken off i was at a meeting this morning about it and we started off just just very small scale but now we're we've covered we're in 12 local authorities in the north of england so the whole of northeast england is now covered and we've got these amazing project workers who are working with parents who had kids during lockdown imagine having a baby during lockdown and having no grandparent support and no health visitors and no baby and toddler groups. So she's working with them and bringing mostly young women together into a reading group. And in other places, we're working with older people and we're working with mental health groups. And it's it's really just, I'm so so delighted that it's taken off so well. Yeah, that's that's great. Did you, you know, in, in that speaking of the, the, the lockdown and all that, did the way a lot of people behave during that time surprise you and did that kind of change maybe so how you do characters um i don't think we had the polarization here that you had in the u.s so we didn't have a huge anti-vax group and most people actually obeyed the rules we you know, we're brits we queue up we're quite good at doing what we're told so certainly in the street where i live and i haven't moved since i got any money so i'm still in the little street where i well, where I lived with Tim, it was miraculous because we had a WhatsApp group and we had people would text and say, there's bread flour at the supermarket. Do you want me to get you any? And we had one woman who worked in a post office, so she was still at work and she would take everybody's mail out to, to mail. 
we had somebody else who did accounts in a brewery, and she was our beer fairy, and she would bring beer for us. Oh. <laughs> it was very nice. And then as things opened up a bit, we've still got that WhatsApp group, and now nothing gets thrown away. So if a kid has grown out of a toy or somebody's looking for, I don't know, some tool or other, nothing gets wasted. It's just passed through the street. And so there was great generosity, I think, here. But maybe it was easier for us because we're not so big and we're not so... It it didn't become as politicized as it has, I think, in other places. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Um, are you sometimes surprised at what readers pick out or see or um, think your book is about when you didn't intend it that way? So, like, when you're writing a story or writing a character, sometimes they they respond to them differently than you'd expect? Yeah, and that's good, isn't it? Because, as I said, everybody brings their own ideas and their own imagination to a book. A book is, I think reading is a very creative process. It's not passive. It's very active. And I think um, it's, it's grand. And if people email me and say that they've got something out of the book that I never intended at all, that's quite wonderful. And sometimes absolutely delightful things happen. For instance, when the first Matthew Venn came out and the long haul was on the television, I would quite often get older gay men when I was doing a signing coming in almost in tears to say they never thought that in their lifetime they would see a happily married gay character on mainstream television. And that's just... That makes me feel very honored and very pleased. Yeah, that's, that's, it's true. It's, it's still kind of rare <laughs> and, uh, and amazing that, you know, that sort of thing can actually happen. Um, very, very true. I, I'm kind of curious about, um, this is maybe, uh, me sort of working through my own feelings about small, close knit communities, which you write very well about. Um, I come from one. Um, in Virginia, uh, I no longer live in that community. And, um, it feels so formative, yet also a place that I absolutely had to escape. So I'm curious why you write about those communities. Um, and I know you live, you know, there, but, and also like, why are they like a source of good stories? What was it about close knit community? I think it's also about our tradition because, you know, the Golden Age writers, that's what they wrote about. And certainly, I write about places that are unfashionable, so I would find it very difficult to write a traditional murder mystery set in a fancy village in the south of England, because most people there have lots of money, they have security gates, they commute to London, or they stay at home and do their their work, home working there. But they're not interested in other people. Up here in the northeast, people are very interested in your business, and certainly in Shetland and in some of the communities in North Devon as well. But there is that sense that, you know, there's that saying that every child is brought up by a village. And I think there is that sense of shared responsibility in a small community. And also, if you're very close to everybody who lives around you and you know them, there's that idea of, secrets that everybody knows but can't tell and I find those very interesting but also if somebody is going through a bad time you actually feel it personally in a way you don't if you if you don't know your neighbors that is certainly true I think that connection good for good and bad that close connection is very powerful um and when you you know for me years lived in DC and I no longer but 
it you you don't have that feeling anymore. It does go away. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and you miss it some. I, this is why you know sometimes you don't miss it, but sometimes you do. Yeah, and some people love <laughs> love the anonymity of being in a big city and that nobody is watching and judging them. There's a lot of judging goes on in small communities. Right. People wondering, and and Shetland is the worst for that. You know, it must be dreadful being a teenager in Shetland because everybody knows what you're up to, and will probably tell your parents. And I love, what I love right about Shetland is it's very bleak and very open, so there are no trees really in Shetland, so you can see for miles to the horizon. And yet, so that that sense of you can see everything that's there and that's going on there, but that there are secrets hidden. And the contrast between that, I think, is very interesting to explain. How do you tackle your evil or bad characters? Like, how do you draw for that? I don't write monsters. I'm not interested in psychopathic serial killers. I am more interested in ordinary people driven to do to do something dreadful or people who are just greedy. Greed is at the root of all sorts of things or resentful or jealous. Envy is a is not a good good thing to live with, I think. And but I'm looking at characteristics that we all have but just push it to extreme. So we might all be jealous of somebody who's doing better than, than we are. We might all want to take out revenge on somebody who's, I don't know, run off with our partner or we probably wouldn't kill them. You know, we might write nasty things about them on social media or cut up their suits, but I don't think we would kill them. So it's just taking that emotion that we all have, but just pushing it to extremes. Well, did you have a favorite character that you've written over the years that you still um, cherish the most? I don't think I do because I'm very fond of all the ones that I've written. There is a there's a um, a standalone book that I did called The Sleeping and the Dead, and there's a detective in there who has a kind of mental health issues in that he's lacking confidence and he's he finds life tricky. He's called Porteous, and I quite like that character, and I'm pleased that certainly that's still in print here, and I think. Minotaur will bring it out as well in the States. So I hope so. I'm quite pleased with that character. Was there ever any of the books you've written or stories that you've um, wished you could go back and change now? Um, no, because they're done and they were written at the time they were written. I'm, because I've been 30 years with the same publisher in the UK, they're reprinting some of my early books. And I have been back and reread, and sometimes I've changed language because we don't call people the names that we used to. If they're behaving a bit bizarrely, we're more understanding, I think. Mostly I know that they were written at a time when I was quite inexperienced, and I think that's fine. They can go out as they stand, and if people don't enjoy them, that's okay too. You're not one that really worries about whether people like a book or not or do you follow reviews and things like that or do you just stay away from that yeah i mean i don't try i don't not look at them on purpose but i don't try and look at them so you know if i've got a good review in a national press that's lovely you know and i'll be grateful but i don't i don't get grumpy if i get a bad review i did the, the only really nasty review i got was in one of our right-wing papers and I saw that as a badge of honour, actually. 
<laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand that. Anyway, so now, uh, how do you, uh, are you doing a lot of touring coming up, and, and do you do a lot of social media, or do you have a website? How do people find Anne Cleaves? Yeah, I do have a website, com. I do Twitter, because I quite like Twitter, because it's short, and just fire it off, and it doesn't take ages. I have an author Facebook page, so people can find me on that too. But mostly people are kind, I think, on social media to me. Perhaps they just think I'm old and ineffectual, so I'm not worth being nasty to. So. <laughs> but most people are very nice to me, so that's all right. So I, I check that occasionally, and I, yeah, what's coming up? Well, I came back from the States a fortnight ago after doing those those uh, gigs with Laurie Raider Day and then doing Malice Domestic, the, the um, convention in Bethesda, and then a couple of days in New York for meetings with my agent and with the publisher. And next month I'm off to Shetland because we're doing a, a crime writing festival called Shetland Noir in the middle of June, which is not that noir because we've got writers like Richard Osman and Ellie Griffiths and... Bar McDermott, who can be a bit more, but it's just going to be great fun. And the people, the Shetlanders are so welcoming. So they're already fixing up bus trips to take people around and show them the islands and shared meals. And there's going to be a supper dance, which is the sort of what you would call a Cayley if you lived in the Western Isles. So it's, it's going to be a terrific fun. And I'm really looking forward to going up and I'll be staying with one of my best friends ever. So that'll be lovely. And then I'm hoping for a nice quiet summer before I come out to Bouchacon at the end of August. Try and get this book that I'm working on finished. Well, fantastic. Of course, we'll put all of that on our website, and uh, hopefully uh, everything goes well and you get a quiet summer. I hope so, yeah. I hope to get this book finished. It's a, I'm working on a new Vera now. I would really like to deliver it before I head off to the States because I'm doing... Bachelor and then I'm doing a bit of a tour afterwards. And then when I come back, I'm off to Australia because the books do very oh. well there too. So lots of traveling wow. in the autumn. Yeah, down under. So what, what is one thing you would, uh, tell an aspiring writer, uh, for advice? Um, two things really. Read a lot because as the wonderful Val McDermott once said when she was getting quite annoyed with somebody in a creative writing group, Deciding that you want to be a writer and you don't read is like deciding you want to be a furniture maker and you've never seen a table. So, yeah. <laughs> you do need to read, I think. And also get to the end because there is a tendency with new writers to polish the first couple of chapters and tweak them and edit them and think that they're all lovely and sparkly. But really you just want to get to the end, finish the story, finish the book. And then you can go back and do the fun bits, the editing, and making the, the words sing. The scary bit is getting the story down. Yeah. Well, do you like the new publishing world, the way a lot of people self-publish and the ease of it compared to the standard publishing method? Or Yeah, I think it's great because it's much more democratic and there are people who love doing it. I am completely technically inadequate, so the thought of doing all that formatting or... And then there's the lack of editing as well. I think you would still need an editor because you're so close to a book when you finish it. You, you've, you see things and you've forgotten to tell the reader. You know, it's so clear in your head, but you might not actually put it on the page. 
And so you need someone to tell you that. And because you live with this book for, well, with me, it's usually nine months it takes me to write a book. I, I've got all the characters separate and delineated, and I know exactly who they are. But sometimes I need an editor to say, you've got too many characters here. I'm getting lost. I'm getting confused between this one and that one. Go back and cut a couple out. So you need to listen to a good editor. Right. You've got to find someone that you can trust and, and, yeah. and work with. And someone who's prepared to be honest with you. I can't be doing with. And I think we can all tell if we read a book by a really popular author and they think they're too grand to be edited or that the editor is too scared to edit them. Because you do need to be, you need to be aware. And any names you want to mention? That <laughs> <laughs> is just a general observation. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, always looking for good gossip, you know, <laughs> in the writing world. So, well, it's been a real pleasure having you here. It's been, uh, it's been an honor. And uh, now John and I are able to write successfully after this. <laughs> And we well, appreciate go for it. it. <laughs> Just know that there are lots of brilliant writers out there, and not everybody's had my luck. No, but the the water is warm, so come on in, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Crime writers are the nicest people. Now we have the best conferences, and you'll meet people in the bar that you'll make friends with forever. Well, certainly, certainly, certainly a great community. So, well, and we're glad you're a part of it, and glad you came on the show. Now, our guest, of course, is the great Anne Cleves. Uh, the newest book, hopefully, uh, will be out for BoucherCon, um, The Raging Storm. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Thanks, Anne. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.